mitigation, macroscopic millimeter, modernizing mustache, multitude, monumental, microcosm, Mitchell, metallurgy, and the list goes on. These are words starting with the letter M. Welcome to abstract colon the future of science. I'm Jeremy Allman, your host for today and forever after. We are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research, one episode at a time. So let's go. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, is nuclear energy a safe energy alternative? And can we entrust our future in these fission reactors? How can we use lasers to learn about a material's composition? And what are materials even made of at the smallest scale? How big and how small are the satellites in orbit above our heads? What are they even doing up there? Seriously. Also, what is space junk and how does it pose a problem to other satellites in orbit around the Earth? We're going to be answering these questions and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. Thank you for being here. We're going to get going right now. Three, two, Mitchell Cornell recently received a Master's of Applied Science in Engineering Physics from McMaster University, where his research focused on improving inspection techniques for the nuclear industry. Using laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, or LIBS, he was able to detect parts per million levels of hydrogen and deuterium in a zirconium alloy. This research is of particular interest as it would optimize the duration and performance of required inspection of the pressure tubes in nuclear reactors. These inspections ensure that the level of hydrides in the tubes does not exceed a critical threshold, a point where the pressure tubes become brittle and prone to fracture. Yikes. During his master's research, Mitchell was supported by an NSERC CGSM scholarship and has since shifted focus for his doctoral work. Mitchell's currently a PhD student in the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab at McGill University, where he's planning to investigate the uses of CubeSats for on-orbit servicing. He's supported in this work by the Las Varas Engineering Fellowship. Outside of academia, Mitchell spends his time playing guitar, a passion of his for the last 15 years, golfing and mountain biking or snowboarding, depending on the season. So right now we have Mitchell with us today. I think this is the snowboarding version of Mitchell, given that it is February. So without further ado, let's welcome Mitch to the podcast. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for being here. So pretty pretty cool to have somebody just starting a PhD. We are going to be focusing on predominantly your master's work, given that this is what you've become a full expert in. And we will definitely be touching a little bit on your current PhD research at the end, for sure, because it's new, it's exciting, and... Who knows, we might have you back on the show in a few years when you're coming towards the end, and we can loop back and see what kind of progress has been made. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'd be happy to come back. Sweet. So we're here now. We've got some time to break things down. So this is the first first interview that I'm having with somebody who's worked with the nuclear industry. I'm very excited to hear a bit about this. Dangerous stuff, some people think. From what I know as, as just a, a member of the general public, there's a lot more worry about nuclear energy than there should be. Is this is this true? Like, is, is there kind of this assumption that nuclear is very dangerous when in fact it isn't? Kind of like how people think that they're more likely to die while traveling by plane than by car, even though that's not true either? Yeah, it's... Nuclear power is extremely well-regulated, especially here in Canada. We have the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, or CNSC, 
And they're the people that oversee all of the nuclear reactors that we have in Canada. And my work looking at inspections for nuclear reactors was just part of this effort that the CNSC has implemented, where they're making sure that the groups running these nuclear reactors are doing so in a safe manner. So I think that obviously we have to be safe when we're operating nuclear reactors. I'm not saying that everybody should have one in their backyard, but the degree to which they are maintained and people are making sure that they're operated safe, I think honestly that they're one of the best options that we have right now for our, having a sustainable future, especially in terms of energy production. Mm-hmm. We're not really going to chat about fusion today, but just, just to <laughs> ask you, what do you think the viability is of fusion now that you've worked with nuclear reactors? What do they say? It's always 20 years away and it's been 20 years away for the last 20 or 50 <laughs> years or whatever it's been. It's really difficult. I took a class where we touched briefly on using nuclear fusion as a fuel source, and I'm definitely not enough of an expert to say what a definitive time frame for that happening would be. Sure. But there are some very, very smart people working on those problems. So I think it's a possibility. I wouldn't okay. rule it out entirely. Okay. And you could correct me if I'm wrong, but in nuclear reactors, we're, we're using uh, fission, right? Yes. So this is the splitting of atoms as opposed to fusion which is the the fusion of atoms exactly so it's kind of like reverse processes both of which produce tremendous amounts of energy yep but fusion isn't at the same level i guess in yeah, terms of the, research. yeah the hope with fusion is that you can get a ton of energy out for what you put in a lot more actually than you would get out out of a single fission reaction uh-huh. but getting the conditions required for fusion to happen is extremely difficult you pretty much need a star. Like our sun is a giant fusion reactor. Right. It's kind of hard to build that on Earth. So that's one of the big difficulties they're having. It's a good thing that we don't have to check on the pressure tubes in the sun to make sure that they don't uh, break or crack. There's no pressure tubes there. The yeah, it's a little bit, little bit more difficult to check them out there. For sure. So we're going to leave the sun and let it just do its thing. Keep, yeah. keep warming us. Although exactly. if you look outside now, it doesn't look like it's doing its job. So you used a technique called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. Very, very fancy wording. You want to tell us a bit about what that even entails? Yeah, it's a really, really cool method for determining basically the material composition of whatever you're looking at. My favorite example that I like to tell people about is they put one of these instruments on the Mars Curiosity rover to figure out what Martian rocks were made out of. Ah, sick. So basically you get a high-powered laser you focus it to a small spot on the surface of whatever material you want to investigate. That really high-powered interaction that the laser has with the surface of the material will cause it to rip apart at the surface and basically release kind of a cloud of atoms and ions, and that cloud will become superheated and produce a plasma. That plasma, one of its primary mechanisms for cooling down is giving off radiation or light. And If you've taken a quantum mechanics class, they always talk about those elementary transitions of atoms. Those transitions actually give off specific wavelengths of light. And all of those wavelengths are pretty unique to atoms. So you can look at what specific wavelengths are coming off of your plasma, and then you can tell what atoms you have present inside of your plasma. And then if you get more into the math, you can start using the ratios of how much light is coming off at each wavelength. And that can tell you your 
relative contributions to that plasma in terms of what elements are present in that plasma. Cool. Okay, so what kind of wavelengths can we expect to see when we shoot a laser, for example, at Martian rock? I would assume we're not going up to gamma rays <laughs> or, you know, that kind of high energy. Are we looking at something really low, like radio waves, or is it even visible light? Yeah, typically we're looking in the ultraviolet to near-infrared ranges. Okay, which captures visible as well. Yes. So does this mean that if I use LIBS to shoot a laser at Martian rock... I'll actually be able to see some kind of visual phenomenon in front of me? Yeah, you actually see a little bright flash of light show up wherever your laser's hitting. Okay, which would effectively be the same thing as just me shooting like a dollar store laser pointer at the wall. That's where like the visible part of this radiation comes out? Oh, okay. So the lasers that we're using to shoot at these targets are typically either infrared lasers or uv lasers so you okay. won't actually be able to see the laser beam with your naked mm -hmm. eye cool but what you're seeing is that plasma of light that little kind of ball of atoms exploding is oh. the light that you're seeing <laughs> with your eyes nice atoms exploding that's that's stuff that i'd like to see more often <laughs> yeah where could i get my hands on a libs on a libs um oh, you sorry. can build one yourself <laughs> no, sorry, not, not a libs. where can i get my hands on a laser that can be used in this kind of technique like are, are, is this kind of thing that i could get my hands on as just a a random member of the public or do you need to kind of specially order these for experiments typically they're special order kind of items you can buy some of them just as a regular everyday kind of person they are very expensive so that's okay. Probably the main reason why we don't see everybody running around with a handheld libs unit. <laughs> sure. We'll put a link to the Amazon page for the extremely high-powered lasers, if I can find any. <laughs> okay, sweet, sweet, sweet. So you're using, or at least during your master's degree, you were using this method, the libs spectroscopy method, which, by the way, we had a previous episode where we spoke about spectroscopy in, in the context of an astrophysics discussion. This was, I think, episode 31. So I could definitely see the relationship between the spectroscopy where we're actually looking at, at stars and we mm -hmm. can see the chemical makeup, essentially, of those stars just by virtue of seeing what the, what the wavelengths of light are telling us. So the same thing is happening here when we shoot a laser at the surface is what you're telling me. Exactly. Okay. One of the big differences that we run into versus the astrophysics kind of people is that their source is glowing for a very long time. So they have a very long observation window that they can use. Mm -hmm. Our plasmas that we generate in LIBS are extremely short lived. So we're looking at these plasmas for, in my work, it ended up being around five microseconds that I was looking at an individual <laughs> event. You said five microseconds? Yeah, so five times 10 to the minus six. Seconds. Okay, so, so 200, one two hundred thousandth. Yeah. <laughs> one two hundred thousandth of a second. But you told me that I'd, I'd be able to actually see this, this little burst of, of plasma light. Can my eyes actually perceive something that happens for one two hundred thousandth of a second? So the plasma itself, I believe, lives for around a millisecond. We did some measurements, and that's kind of what we were getting was just under a millisecond or around a millisecond. Yeah. But the useful part of that plasma for us tended to exist only for that short five microseconds. Okay, fair enough. So that's great. So you're using this laser to detect the presence of certain molecules. And so you're looking for hydrides specifically. Yeah. So within the pressure tubes of nuclear reactors, they're made up of a zirconium alloy. And 
as you said in the introduction, those hydrides are kind of what hit that critical point and then can lead to fracturing if you get enough concentration of them. So we're not actually looking for zirconium hydride itself. We're looking for the hydrogen and deuterium signals, basically by ripping those zirconium and hydrogen or zirconium and deuterium bonds. Hydrides are what exactly? They are compounds of zirconium and either hydrogen or deuterium. Where deuterium is just an isotope of hydrogen. Exactly. It's, okay. It can also be known as like heavy hydrogen. Sure. So you just add on your additional neutron. Got it. Okay. Why are we expecting to find deuterium in this zirconium alloy? So in CANDU reactors, which are the power generating nuclear reactors we have in Canada, they use heavy water or D2O as their coolant as opposed to H2O. Uh, okay. So that's why we expect to see deuterium showing up in those signals. I love a nice simple explanation to a very simple question. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so we're, we're using heavy water here. Why exactly? Why are we using heavy water, not regular water? Presumably there's more regular water. It's easier. It's cheaper. Yeah, it's way cheaper. You turn on your <laughs> tap and you have a bunch of regular water, or as the nuclear engineering folks call it, light water. Light water. <laughs> they use it primarily because of its neutron absorption properties. So I am not extremely well versed in the operation of nuclear reactors. I will say that as a caveat. But it has to do with the amount of neutrons that heavy water absorbs versus the amount of neutrons that light water absorbs. So in order to keep their reactor at the critical kind of operating level, they need to use heavy water as their coolant. Okay. We'll just take that at face value for now. They got it because of the, the reactivity, in a sense, of the deuterium. Yeah. Okay. And just so I can get a sense of what zirconium alloy is, where would I find zirconium alloy in my day-to-day -day life? Is it in my refrigerator? Is it in my shoes? Is it in my brain? It's a pretty specialty product. As far as I'm aware, the nuclear industry is pretty much the biggest industrial use of zirconium. Mm -hmm. Depending on the reactor that you're looking at, it might have zirconium-2, zirconium-4, or what we use in Canada, zirconium-2.5% niobium. And these are all just different alloys that have slightly different neutron absorption properties, slightly different mechanical properties. And in the design of the Kandu reactors, they decided that the one with 2.5% niobium was going to be the best for them. So this is a metal, essentially. Yep, just a metal. If you look at it, it looks no different than steel or anything. It's just they picked it because it has those nice neutron properties. Right. Okay, so now that we've spoken about the, the fact that we're using deuterium and we're using zirconium, are, are both of these things involved in the actual reactions that we're creating here, in the, in the actual fission reactions that we're producing here inside these reactors? Not directly. Okay. So the pressure tubes themselves are made up of this zirconium 2.5% niobium. Inside of those pressure tubes, we have the nuclear fuel bundles. So those are the things that are producing our fission reactions, giving off the heat that we use to produce power. In order to keep those at an acceptable temperature and to carry that heat away to do our power generation, we have heavy water coolant flowing over those pressure, over those fuel bundles, sorry. And as that heavy water flows over those fuel bundles and interacts with the pressure tubes that it's flowing inside of, you get some seepage of the deuterium atoms starting to leave the solution of the water and creep themselves into the alloy of the pressure tubes. Mm -hmm. 
Got it. Okay. So this is where you come in. Because if there's too much seepage, if I might use such a word, disgusting as it is, <laughs> this is what can lead to these pressure tubes becoming brittle and prone to fracture. Yeah. Yeah. You get that deuterium breaking up. It goes, it forms zirconium hydride or zirconium deuteride. I tended to just call it zirconium hydride because regardless of the compound, it will behave a similar way inside of the metal. And once you get too much of that, it'll want to fracture. This sounds like a major issue. I feel like I need to kind of amp up the, the emotional intensity of this right now. We, there is already this, this fear about nuclear reactors and nuclear reactions happening. People where these things are going to blow up and malfunction. And you're coming on the show and you're telling me that as a master's student, you're already being recruited to solve this problem of brittle pressure tubes. Is this one of the biggest problems that we have with nuclear reactors? Is this a minor problem? Like how many people every day are just spending their entire life trying to make sure these things don't malfunction? A lot. This is one of the big parts of the nuclear reactors. Like these are your components that are holding the fuel bundles. These are what is supporting those giant fission bundles, if I can call them that. And there was an instance, I don't want to get the year wrong, but I believe it was in the 1970s where one of the nuclear reactors in Pickering actually had one of its pressure tubes fail. And the zirconium hydride content was later discovered to be one of the issues that led to that fracture in that pipe growing up to the length that it did. Obviously, they caught the issue before it got out of hand. These reactors are designed with so many safety systems that'll kick in autonomously. So once it started to notice that there was anomalies, the entire reactor shut down, everything was safe. Mm -hmm. But since then, there have been regulations put in place that regular inspections must be done on these nuclear reactors to make sure that the level of hydrogen and deuterium in these pressure tubes is not exceeding any of the mandated thresholds that the CNSC has come up with. Got so it. they'll put these reactors into shutdown and do inspections to figure out how much hydrogen, how much deuterium has migrated into these pipes. Okay. And so I'm curious to know specifically what your role was and also what kind of results you got in your specific master's research. For sure. So the method that they've been using to do these inspections for a long time has been mass spectroscopy. And mass spectroscopy is amazing. It will tell you exactly what you have, exactly how much of everything you have. But the issue is that it's really expensive and it takes a really long time to get results. So what I was trying to do was develop a proof of concept that would say we can use LIBS or laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy to detect the presence of hydrogen and deuterium in zirconium 2.5% niobium with some degree of confidence. So I was really trying to prove that first step that we can use a new inspection technique that's faster, produces the same level of results, if it were to be implemented, exposes workers to less dose, and can all be done on site. You don't have to ship anything off site for analysis. I want you to think of a number between one and a hundred. When you've got that number, I want you to say, okay, I'm ready. All right. Now I've been taking this mind reading course and I'm doing quite well. I have 100% in the mind reading course. Of course, I knew that my teacher was going to give me that grade. 
And I believe the number you're thinking of is... 37. If I correctly guessed your number, tag me on Instagram at abstractcast. And congratulations. So let's actually talk about the numbers here. You said mass spectroscopy took quite long. What's the uh, time savings here for mass spectroscopy versus LIBS? So with mass spectroscopy, we would be looking on the timescale for these inspections of months. It's taking quite a while to get these samples, send them off site and do the full analysis. With LIBS, we would be looking at running a full inspection campaign on the order of days to weeks. Wow. That's savings, especially if you're talking about cracks in pressure tubes in a nuclear reactor. Time is of the essence. Also, time is really money in the nuclear industry. Every day that your reactor is shut down is a lot of money that you're not making because you're not distributing power out to whatever community you're serving. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. That's amazing. I, I can't say that during the short period of time where I was conducting my own graduate research that I felt I was making such a big difference in the world. I was working on some very theoretical psycholinguistics, but this is like, this is, this is big stuff. This is real, real tangible effects on improving safety and optimizing a very, very important aspect of the functionality of these massive reactors. That's crazy. Yeah, I would have meetings with my supervisor from time to time, and he would just remind me every now and then, basically what you just said, that, you know, the scale of this is huge. If this works, this is huge. It's going to make a huge impact. So it was really driven home to, you know, do the best possible work I could, be extremely vigilant in the results that I was getting and making sure that what I was doing was right. Yeah, geez, that's, that's high pressure. Were there ever any points throughout your master's where you just like felt extremely stressed and overwhelmed with the, the magnitude of the importance of your work? Absolutely. When it had been, I don't even know how many months at this point, at least three or four months where I wasn't getting good results. And then thinking about those thoughts in the back of my head, telling me, you know, this, it should work. If it works, it's going to be huge. It'll save all this time. It'll save all this money. It'll have people getting less radiation dose. Definitely at those times, I felt the stress start to build. And, you know, I'm lucky where that stress kind of just pushed me to work harder, thankfully. Otherwise, you know, the amount of pressure that doing, I think, any kind of grad school can be a bit much at times. Well, good for you for making it through. Is that the reason why you ended up pivoting fields? You just couldn't take the heat? <laughs> no, that was more of a big kind of sitting down and thinking about what I want from life. When I looked at where I saw myself in you know, 10 or 15 years, I realized that I don't think I would be extremely happy if I were to end up in the nuclear field, which is definitely where I was heading. And I thought back about all of the things that I want to make a big impact on, like what interests me the most? What do I spend my time Googling when I get home? And it always ended up being stuff related to space. So I decided that if I was going to pursue a doctoral degree, I had to pivot. I had to go and try and pursue something that I was truly passionate about. How has that transition been so far? I know a handful of people who have done a master's degree and either fast track or continue in the same lab. We actually had someone on the show, his name was Eitan Bolka, who did exactly that as part of the Mechatronics Lab, which you are a part of. So I'm definitely curious to hear a bit about what that transition was like for you. Yeah, the good part about the transition was it was engineering to engineering. So it's not a huge night and day switch, but the thing that kind of, I guess, was is still 
giving me the most difficulties is switching from engineering physics and this nuclear kind of thinking towards mechanical engineering and realizing that I don't always have the exact skill set that I should have had coming into a doctoral degree in this. So it's been a lot of trial by fire, learning as fast as I can, as much as I can. So it's been a lot of fun because it forces me to learn this material that I'm really interested in, but it definitely was kind of a lot of pressure and a lot of stress to learn this material well. Yeah, I would imagine. I felt similarly when I started my master's degree, I felt unprepared, even though I wasn't necessarily making a switch, right, from doing one, for focusing my graduate research in one field to another, but even just coming out of my undergraduate degree, I, I, I definitely feel you on that level, but awesome that you're in it. How are you enjoying it now that you're embarking? So this is the beginning, you're, you're how, how far, maybe like three to six months into your degree now? Yeah, I guess I just passed the five-month mark, so I started in September of 2020, and I love it. Honestly, the project that I've been talking with my supervisor about, every time we have a meeting and discuss it, I get more excited about the potentials of it and directions that we're going to take it. So I couldn't be happier. So I know that nothing is necessarily set in stone at this point, but I, I still do want to touch on this current research. I definitely have some deep interest in space and astrophysics. And so I, I know that you're kind of definitely brushing shoulders with those fields. So in the introduction, of course, we spoke about the fact that you're going to be using CubeSats. Before I even talk about what you're using CubeSats for, let's let's discuss what CubeSats actually are. It sounds like an abbreviation for something. I'm actually not sure if it's an abbreviation for anything. As far as I know, it's just they called it a CubeSat because it's made up of these primary units that are 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So they're these little cubes, and they put them together in different ways to make a satellite. So I think that's where the name came from, but I might be completely wrong. Well, so so SAT is short for satellite. Yeah, yeah, I guess that part is short for something. <laughs> okay, so so satellites made out of little cubes. Yes. Why 10 centimeters, if I may? So this standard was developed by a couple of professors in California. I believe it was a professor from the California Polytechnic Institute and Stanford, mm -hmm. and I don't know the history on why exactly they came up with this size, but they basically came up with this standard that allowed space to be more accessible to people. So they've made a way that you can design satellites that are small, but are fully functional as complete spacecraft. We have Earth observation CubeSats now, we have communications CubeSats, a lot of science missions being run on CubeSats. So it's a very capable platform, but you don't have to launch something that's the size of your coffee table or the size of your car or these big satellites that we typically associate when we think of space. So you're telling me that the entire CubeSat is just one cube? At its smallest scale, yeah. Oh, I thought the CubeSats were made out of little cubes, but you're saying one individual satellite can just be 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. I think the smallest fully functional one that was released was a half U, so they call one 10 centimeter cube a U or a unit, uh -huh. and the smallest one was 0.5 U that has been launched. So they had a fully functional satellite that was 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 5 centimeters. <laughs> That's small. I actually just took the ruler from the corner of my desk and measured that my, my index finger is about 10 centimeters, index or middle finger. I, I figured middle was maybe a little too profane for a family-friendly <laughs> podcast, but that's pretty small. Like, I don't know, maybe you could think of just the height of your palm 
That's that's tiny that there's a satellite that's doing something useful from space that is so small. How do we even track these objects? Are we tracking them with other satellites? <laughs> so NORAD has a database where they can track any object in space that is, I believe, bigger than 10 centimeters. Ooh. So CubeSats are right at kind of the limit of that. It might be smaller than that. I should throw a caveat in there again. But also there are some heavy regulations on CubeSats that say if you're launching them into space, they have to be able to decay from their orbits within a certain time span as to not add to the space junk problem. And some of them will have their own onboard tracking capabilities. Like if they're interested in doing Earth observation as they transmit down their pictures, you can get an idea of where they are. Or if they're making some kind of science measurement, like measuring the radiation content of low Earth orbit, as they take their measurements, they'll need some kind of geolocation so that you can put that into reference for the orbital frame and know where that measurement came from. This is insane. I, I just, I've always imagined that if, if something or somebody was just kind of floating in orbit around Earth, that it would just, it would be like, trying to find them would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And so imagining that there's this, this, this tiny cube the size of my hand that we're keeping track of. And presumably there are, I don't know, how many? Hundreds, thousands, millions of these? There have been about 1,400 CubeSat missions launched. Wow. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Right. Some of which have already had their orbits decay, most likely. Yes. Okay. So we're not, like you said, contributing to the space junk problem, which yeah. we could, I'm sure this could be a whole other episode talking about space junk. What do you know about space junk? Yeah, so as satellites go through their lifetime, they will effectively die for one reason or another. They might run out of fuel and no longer be able to do their orbit-keeping maneuvers. They might have a part fail because it's been hit by radiation too much or some other kind of failure. And then it's kind of just abandoned in the orbit that it's in. And based on the laws of orbital mechanics, it will decay and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere eventually. But for some of these objects, it might be thousands or tens of thousands of years until this happens, depending on the orbit that it was in. That's so crazy. if it's in a really popular orbit, if it's in a nice orbit that we want to send more satellites to, having this piece of debris flying around is really not a good scenario to be in. And even for little tiny pieces of debris, they might pose a huge problem because when you're orbiting Earth, you're traveling so fast relative to everything else that's around that a little tiny pebble coming at you is like having a cannonball shot at you almost. So we really want to be sure that whatever's in space, as we're launching new things, they'll either re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, burn up and not be a problem for us. Or what my new work is kind of looking at is, can we repair those satellites that have gone defunct and are no longer operational? Repair which satellites? The CubeSats or bigger ones? Bigger ones. So you want to repair bigger satellites using CubeSats? Yeah, exactly. Whoa, it's like it's like a satellite birthday party. Everyone's celebrating <laughs> together. All the baby satellites are bowling and the mommy satellites are just watching to make sure they don't hit each other with the bowling balls. I don't know why that came to mind. <laughs> so there are, there are a lot of science fiction movies that take place in space. And I feel like they portray a specific, you know, cleanness and like futurism and like organization to space. 
But the fact that we just have like random cubes just flying around the earth, potentially bashing into other objects, brings a really nice juicy chaos to it. Oh yeah. One of uh, my favorite piece of space junk, if you can have a favorite piece of space junk, you can. there's a European Space Agency satellite called Envisat. And at the time, this was this super revolutionary satellite. It got a lot of great science for us, but it's about the size of a bus. And <laughs> we kind of suddenly lost control of this satellite. And now there's just a bus essentially flying through Earth's orbit that we're not able to control. It's kind of in an out of control tumbling scenario. So a lot <laughs> of this work in this field has been focused on, can we get Envisat and can we move it out of the way? Like, can we return it to Earth's atmosphere so it will burn up and we can get rid of it? And it's in a really prime orbit. So I can't believe that there's a giant rogue bus just hurtling through space at how many thousands of kilometers an hour? Yeah, a lot. Oh my goodness. That's insane. I think we, I think Hollywood's gotta gotta make more movies about space junk because I could see a lot of a lot of drama and action ensuing from this. I think the movie Gravity. I I've never seen the full thing, but I think their issues start because they were hit by a piece of space junk. Oh really? Okay, the plot yeah. thickens. So somebody has thought about it. Okay, good. As long as there's somebody, uh, listeners, if you are aware of any other films, including Gravity or others that have touched on space junk, please let me know. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. I want to know what you know because you now know what we know. Okay, that's amazing. So are CubeSats a new kind of technology? Is this something that's come up in the last five to ten years? Or is this like are, – are we at like the – CubeSats V20. We're definitely up there on the iterations. I believe that they came out around the 90s is when the first ones started to be launched. And then as time has gone on, they've become more and more popular. Everybody wants to launch a satellite to space. It's one of the coolest things to do, at least in my opinion. And now all of a sudden the barrier has been reduced from millions or billions of dollars to build these satellites to, you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's still not something that the everyday person can get together, but a university, yeah, they might have the funds to be able to do that. I can see somewhat of a common thread developing, where in your master's research, you were reducing the amount of time it would take to detect potential issues in the tubes of nuclear reactors tenfold. And now we're talking about reducing using some kind of technology where the price has been reduced by, like you're saying, at least tenfold. So... Who knows, maybe if you do a postdoc, you'll be doing something else that gets better by tenfold. And I can't wait to see what that might be. Yeah, I've never put that together. So thanks for pointing that out for me. Apparently, I'm just driven by lowering costs of things. You're just an optimizer through and through. And I appreciate that about you. I do have a question, which was actually sent to me by a good friend. His name is Noah Sadaka. Thank you, Noah Sadaka, for this question. Noah Sadaka, friend and listener, asks... Do you have to take into account the Earth's magnetic field when trying to get the spacecraft to a specific attitude? And not altitude, but attitude. Maybe you could tell us what attitude is. Yeah, so I'll touch on both of those. So altitude is basically the height that we're orbiting at. The International Space Station, for example, orbits somewhere around 400 kilometers above Earth's surface. Okay. And now the attitude is what orientation that is in space. So if you imagine in your mind a rectangular prism, 
you might have the long axis of that rectangular prism pointing towards Earth, or you might have it pointing along the direction that you're traveling in. So how that spacecraft or that piece of debris is oriented in space tells us about the attitude. Cool. And now to get on to the second part of that, the magnetic field influencing that, most spacecraft are made out of aluminum or other non-ferrous metals. So the Earth's magnetic field isn't going to interact with the spacecraft that much. But what we can do is take advantage of that magnetic field to orient our spacecraft in specific ways by using what are called magnetorquers. So these are devices that will produce their own magnetic field, which will then interact with the Earth's magnetic field and attempt to align those poles so that we can get some kind of orientation change of our satellite. Can we maybe do that to help orient the giant bus that's hurtling through space? Yeah, there have been some papers published on, you know, slapping these kind of small modules onto tumbling space debris and either using reaction wheels or magnetorquers in order to stabilize that orientation of that piece of debris and then going and grabbing onto it so that it's in a safer configuration. Sweet. Okay, nice. I'm really glad we were able to make that connection too. Yeah. Okay, so people are, are really trying to solve this giant hurtling bus problem. Yeah, the European Space Agency, I mean, it's their bus that's up there. They did have a mission for a while that was planning on going and grabbing that piece of debris and bringing it back into Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Last I heard, though, I believe that mission has been canceled. I'm not too sure why that happened, but space debris is something that a lot of people and all of the big organizations are concerned about, and they're definitely looking into. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll have to wait until they release the new bus schedule. Okay. Alrighty. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Believe it or not, our time is nearly up and we're at the final wow. question. Last question of the day to close things off. Kind of a thought experiment. You're standing at the foot of a giant auditorium, thousand seater, packed to the brim, all eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? Honestly, given the state of the world that we're in, I would just ask them to be kind to themselves, be kind to others, and be kind to the planet that we call home. Like, we're going through some tough times right now, and even in the best of times, you don't know what the person beside you is going through. You might be going through tough times yourself, so just give yourself a little bit of leeway. Be nice to those people that are beside you, and give someone on the street a smile or a wave, and hopefully you're wearing a mask and all that good stuff, but... Just be friendly. Be kind. Words of wisdom. Mitchell the wise, Mitchell the compassionate, Mitchell the intellectual. Thank you so much, Mitchell Cornell, for being on the show today. Absolute pleasure. So excited for you to be embarking on a PhD that you've pivoted fields. Sounds like you're super into it and you're really loving it. So that came through today, at least for me. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I had a great time. I'm happy to be here. Hopefully I'll be able to come back in a couple of years when I know what my research actually looks like. We're still going to be here. I can assure you that much. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Take it easy. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at AbstractCast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So 
feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.